Hi there, this is Mike here. Since uh, recording our last episode, uh, my grandmother, Audrey Tinoco, passed away. Uh, she was featured on the episodes Come On Ray from this season, as well as an interview I did with her in the first season uh, entitled Holy Shoes, Mom Made Clothes, and Spooky Radio Shows in the Great Depression. Uh, she was a beloved grandmother and mother, um, and of course she was <clears throat> many more things uh, than that as well. Uh, so she will certainly be missed by myself and also my fellow speech guys uh, who got to spend a little bit of time with her through this podcast uh, as well as you listeners um, as well. So she was 96. She lived a very full life, full of love in many different ways. Uh, so I guess my prayer for you this Christmas is to keep her in your prayers uh, and also uh, those close to you whom you love. So thank you very much. This is the end. This is the last episode of the second season. Uh, we look forward to connecting with you again. It's going to be sometime in mid-February that we'll be getting up going with the next speech series, season three. So with that, enjoy the show. When you see the road from every direction, it will give you eyes, give you hope, it'll give you perspective. I've been back and forth, and yeah. My crashes. Now I've seen the road. It goes every direction. Here we go, episode number 34, last one of season two. Here's to 2022. It's a good year. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Landon, what's going on tonight? Boom. Today we have Renee Girard. Uh, talk he gave in 2009, an interview more, really, at the Hoover Institute. Um, but a speech, actually. <clears throat> yeah, right. Um, check him out. Uh, he's a Stanford professor of theology, philosophy, um, and has some interesting work that's starting to get a little more popular in certain online niches in the philosophical world. Um, the reason we're looking at him is because he has some seemingly simple theories that have, I think, uh, some profound implications for how to think about modernity, Christianity, and the, um, yeah, the events of Jesus and the biblical perspective for what happens, what happens next? How does, how does the world operate, um, with the Christian myth now uh, fully transpiring. So, uh, one might say prophetic. Prophetic, yeah, it's prophetic, <laughs> which finishes That's up our the last speeches by prophets. Prophetic series. Uh, a couple things we'll be talking about: um, mimetic, mimesis, and scapegoating, and just really looking, um, kind of historically, comparing Christianity to other. Uh, perhaps other religions or just the way the nature of, of humans and how we interact with each other um, 
What does it mean? How significant is it? So to dive in, we'll just uh, start out with some definitions and an excerpt from the speech. And so where where, <clears throat> where does this speech slash interview come from, Landon? Yeah, the Hoover Institute um, from it's kind of later in Renee's life. He is an influencer of some of like the technologists of our era, Peter Thiel being one of them, um, who the ways that they think about the world and uh, the Christian faith and what it means for society. So points of background you're particularly interested in, Mike? Well, speech interview comes from December 2009, this Hoover Institute, like you said, it's between... Rene Girard and this Peter Johnson guy, right, who works for this uh, institute. Yeah. About 36 minutes long. And yeah. yeah, I mean, I think a good summary of it, like you, you point out there, it's almost, it's more of a summary of his life's work. Yeah. Right. It's compacting 36 minutes of, you know, 50 or 60 years of work um between these three sort of ideas or sort of four depending on how you look at mm-hmm. it mimetic desire scapegoating as a binding substance of civilization how christianity um subverts the scapegoating mechanism into something more profound and then how that devolves into apocalyptic behaviors of civilizations those are sort of the four mm. components of this speech that we're going to try to wade through as as adult infants in the river jordan seeking baptism if you will (laughs) yep that was great actually yeah so good so good all right quote idea number one um let's let's listen to it talk about it imitative nature of desire leads to conflict it leads to conflict, and this is a, both something very obvious and which is a paradox for most people when they first realize it. If you imitate the desire of someone else, you admire that someone else, or that someone else may be your best friend. But as soon as you both desire the same object, and the objects really desirable exist only in one copy. In ones. So I shouldn't say copy because it's not a copy. It's the original. There is only one, there Helen, is only one, only one o- Helen of Troy. Original. Oh. And therefore they have to fight. Therefore the real, the theatrical situation par excellence is a situation of two people desiring the same object because they designate that object to each other. Once the imitated subject realizes he is imitated, this reinforces his desire. He said, I certainly selected the right object. As soon as this man saw her, he fell in love with her, like I did. Therefore, we are white. Therefore, I'm more convinced than ever that I should desire her. Therefore, he's my enemy. <laughs> Just another way to, to think about that, I think what he's really beginning to talk about here is um, his main theory, which is mimesis. Uh, another way to say that is man 
is the creature who does not know what to desire, and he turns to others in order to make up his mind. We desire what others desire because we imitate their desires. Um, so his theory posits, just a definition, um, this desire leads to natural rivalries and then eventually scapegoating. Um, and societies unify their imitative desires around the destruction of kind of collectively agreed upon scapegoats. Um, so that's big picture. We're talking about mimetic theory, mimesis, just the idea that, um, you know, even reading that out loud, kind of what I thought of was just like original, when I think of the word desire, like original desires, Garden of Eden, like desiring the thing that you cannot have or that that Eve, you know, took the apple, Satan kind of tempted her with that initial desire and now everything we do is kind of what we see others have and end up wanting that and that is like the basis for conflict. Um, what did you guys think when you heard of this concept? Was it like over, like too simple and like that makes sense? It's perhaps not even that interesting or was it somewhat more profound? Where were you at on the spectrum there? For me, it was almost like uh, like popping a bubble. It made zero sense until like, and then just the bubble is popped and it's like, oh, okay, yeah. Like, and then you can kind of see it everywhere. Um, actually, Bishop Barron has a little like nine minute spiel on Rene Girard that was like, that was kind of a bubble popping. Um, kind of incident for me but um but yeah like once you because yeah it appears very technical like with all the you know mimetic desire that's kind of an unusual language but and you know like oh this designates desire to something else, you know like yeah that sounds super confusing but um i think that yeah it, it was just a um but once you see it it's like yeah like you don't um i mean i see this like with just like young nieces and nephews they don't even know there's another toy in the room until their sibling has it, and now they want it. <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of like the it's simple like version, but, you know, you see it. In, evident right off the bat, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, with that, I thought that example was the one that clicked, and then it's like, oh, yeah, you see this in advertising. You see this. Um, I mean, I see this in myself when it's like, um, you know, aspects of my marriage even that it's like, oh, yeah, we're fine. We look like this is doing going great, and then, like, someone says something it's like wait well that doesn't sound like a you know and now mm -hmm. it's like well shoot am i missing out am i doing that you know and yeah i mean it can certainly spark a lot of uh yeah a lot of like internal angst and then like subsequent um yeah just action violence as he would say uh, as he would put it um in certain ways but um but yeah it's it's a very yeah, it's the type of thing that's so simple. It's like uh, it's like this is water, you know. It's so mm -hmm. obvious that you don't know you're swimming <laughs> in it. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think when I first heard it, um, kind of similarly, I guess his language was kind of, I guess, maybe like Matt, you said technical, but like I felt like I had a little bit of trouble just following him the first time I listened to it. Um, but then, like, I thought the, like, I don't know, I appreciate it. I think the interviewer did a good job, too. And then um, I also listened to the Bishop Barron 
like nine minute video about it, which was good. But um, anyway, I think the the kid example is I think was just what struck it to me so much with how kids seem to do that with everything, um, whether like you I mean toys, but I mean food, clothes, literally everything. Like my kids, you know, the little one wants what his brother has all the time. Um, so I think that kind of made it just kind of sit and say, oh yeah, that does seem to be true. I mean, we didn't teach him that, obviously. My other first reaction was I just kind of wondered if that was going to apply across all desires or if it was almost more limited to certain things. So I tried to start thinking about, yeah, like, you know, maybe, I don't know, we didn't want this house because a friend had this exact same house but you know because of certain things maybe a house a lot like this has seemed attractive or this is what i'm kind of quote unquote supposed to have and it does seem like when you actually think about different desires it does seem to have a it does seem to ring true i guess when you actually start thinking about why you want different things there's an example in the supplemental analysis video that Jonathan B. and David Perel do, like, you could think, oh, well, <clears throat> if mimetic desires, like, copying or, or because they have that I want it, um, doing the opposite of that desire is still, like, positioning yourself kind of off of a sort of mimetic thing, where it's like, you know, the example they gave was, you know, the business world always wore suits, like, everything you wore suits you like dress the part you fit the role the mold and then kind of the tech bros came along and now it's like t-shirts it's like they are you could say they're not like mirroring what is going on there but they're still responding to it and saying like i'm the opposite of this and trying to like be on you know a similar frame of mind but like a photo negative, just you can still just see rebelling rebelling against you know their version of it um and that's still sort of a mimetic dance um so here's what i think that the speech <clears throat> just to keep our branding uh the speech does not do a great job of and it required me looking into this uh what's this jonathan peel jonathan b david perel yeah okay david perel uh, that, that this uh, other lecture, not a speech, um, did a better job of explaining. So and what I mean by that is like setting up a more profound context for this idea of mimetic desire, right? So prior to um, Rene Girard's idea of mimetic desire, which originated in like the 70s or 60s when he theorized this, is I understand it, anthropologists had this notion of, um, it's not exactly clear to me, just basically hedonistic impulses sort of governing um, yeah. the most substantial human behavior, mm -hmm. right? It's like, you want food, you get food. And which is sort of animalistic sounding, like that's what animals do, right? They move because they need to go get food or water over here, or they need to mate over here. 
And what Girard does is says that, no, what makes humans unique is this idea of desire. Now, you might say that, well, what are you, what are you talking about? I mean, I see two dogs fighting over a piece of meat. Like, how is that not mimetic desire? Well, I'd say what's different is that both of the dogs, like, they just simply want that meat. They don't want it because another dog wants it. I mean, I think if you think hard enough, that idea can sort of distill out where it's wanting something simply because the other person wants it without taking into account the object itself. Um, it's it's not expressed like super clearly in that segment you just read, so I'm going to yeah. like say it again. Yeah. That idea, the example of like the girl is a really good example that I can think like personally in my own life where you're dating someone maybe not necessarily as excited about the relationship as you'd like to be, but then you hear that so-and-so thinks that this girl is attractive or great, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm on the right track, right? It's like sure. nothing about your history or memory of this girl has changed, but simply the fact that another guy, you know, wants her in some, some way, right? So that, yes, definitely, definitely um, seems relevant there. So this talks about the concept being like negative and the the main way that conflict arises between people right. and even nations that you know marrying and coveting either resources or um, consumerism I don't know which which makes sense because war does not exist among lions right obviously they fight mm -hmm. obviously every animal groups of animals fight but war is a distinctly human behavior in yeah it it seems like it has 100 percent to do with desire yeah mimetic desire right probably i guess the original story would probably be cain and abel the the conflict there being like who gave the better offering to yeah, god right. like and cain being like yeah, just didn't feel like his was up to it, so he killed his brother. Um, and, like, it's not quite the original sin, but it's, like, the second. <laughs> well, I think even the story, and, you know, there's different videos on Girard on original sin, and maybe he says this effectively exact thing. But, I mean, you think even, even though the story of original sin, as it's presented with Adam, Eve, Apple... Even if it's not obviously mimetic desire, what you said earlier, Landon, I think does sufficiently reflect it as more or less the same thing is that wanting what you can't have, right? I mean, if someone else has it, then you can't have it. And with the apple, you know, Eve could not have it. And so it was, yeah, she wanted it because she could not have it. Not, well, I don't know. Eh, yeah. I'm starting to ramble right. out there, but yeah. maybe, maybe there's a connection there. Yeah. Um, but Cain and Abel, yeah. Two, couple more things on this. I'd be curious to get your opinion on the. Uh, another really interesting point was like the it it stirs up conflict and. You know, through all of our podcasting and just like the research we've done, is like man, people, men, 
societies, like you used to just have to go to war a lot. I mean, if we were born in any other generation, like we would have been called to fight or like been put on the line. Like you, yeah. Can we do a thought experiment really quick? Yeah, sure. Okay, right. So our parents, effectively Vietnam, right? That would have been the war um, or the Gulf War, maybe a little bit right. younger grandparents world war Two or korea great grandparents world war one great great grandparents they might have uh, got off the they might have spanish got off. yeah may have gone off yeah. or the spanish american war is that right uh great 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 grandparents civil war great, and then great great anything yeah. before that i mean all of europe it was, was just constant yeah war. it was just like <laughs> yeah. it it slowed down until what when did it start slowing down you guys know where i'm going with this i think it slowed down like with the industrial revolution and the onset of capitalism uh, i guess which industrial revolution you know because um, I, I know that, i mean I, i've heard people kind of categorize it in like phases yeah you know but are you 1800s like the 1800s yeah just like the move okay. um so one of the the theories they posit is like there is this mimetic desire like um the conflict like is growing um it always is like kind of expanding and it doesn't it seems like we live in a super peaceable time and um there's not that many wars. There's kind of perhaps atomic bombs or whatnot. But Gerard is like, it's all pent up and somewhat being suppressed because the outlet for it is like just pure regulated competition and like the markets and businesses. And when you look at and, and listen to like how businesses talk and how cutthroat they are and it's profit motivated, like all of that energy can be flowed into perhaps a you know, more useful or less violent um, purpose. But if it's not <clears throat> highly regulated and organized, like in the older parts of, of our conflict leeches out, like it, it will end up with wars and rumors of wars. So Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, like, phrase that was used by Girard or... Um... Jonathan and what David is that there's a difference between true peace and the mm -hmm. potential for violence. Andrew Rard would say that we're in a high potential for, for violence. Which you wouldn't know, like if we were having this podcast a year ago before Ukraine, Russia, even like the latest developments of China, like things did feel very peaceable. You wouldn't have been worried about potential for violence. Um, but now it seems like, yeah, uh, it is there, um, and it is something that takes a lot of diplomatic work to to maintain. Um, right. Yeah, that, I thought that was an interesting concept. Just like okay. capitalism replacing war. Yeah. Being being well, I I don't know. Well, yeah, I guess replacing is the right word, but it's almost like a uh, an, outlet like an outlet for you know, for the worst. Like, yeah. A kid harnessing the energies and, you know, of dealing yeah. drugs. It's like. All right, he joins the wrestling team and beats the crap yeah. out of people there. Mm -hmm. Kind of. Yeah. 
So, I mean, that is a really profound idea when you really think about it, right? Like you're saying, Matt, like, yeah, the guy who in one point in history would be a the most dangerous guy in the Wild West is now right. Elon Musk yeah. or, you know, something like that, right? And, like, that, that's a really impressive idea about capitalism. Like, whoa, holy smokes, that's, that's an incredible achievement. Correct. That's, yeah understated right now there's a dark side of that sure. that they reference which i forgot so it's obviously not that important <laughs> well there's certainly like all kinds of shady capitalism yeah I mean, um but i think it always feels like when we try to describe it like we're comparing capitalism to socialism it's like no it like you know it allows for growth or hope or potential but this seemed to like put the finest point I've ever heard on it. Like it channels negative energy I think, into more productive things. But it, it doesn't, yeah, and it doesn't just channel that negative energy into positive energy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like it, because he, because Gerard seems rather like skeptical of it in different so, areas yeah. as well. And like definitely sees like the dark side of it. So it's it's almost like, and he, I mean, he talks about it kind of like it's this sort of silent ramping up instead of this like might even think of it like um, like the family that doesn't talk about their conflicts until they don't talk to each yeah. other anymore versus like the, you know, for some reason, I always imagine an Italian family. Sorry for our Italian <laughs> listener. Actually, not sorry, because this is a compliment, actually. But I feel like the families that just kind of let it fly sometimes actually like stay together better. Yeah. You know, because they like they air their conflicts, they, you know, they they kind of achieve a resolution cuz they speak their mind, you know, it's not this kind of silent, you know, seeping thing. So I mean, I guess capitalism's almost like the silent seeping kind of um ramping up almost like a highway to um yeah, just like a highway to like mega violence, right? Which is kind of getting into maybe the apocalyptic stuff, which maybe we'll save that for a little bit mm -hmm. later, but um yeah, so like he's definitely very skeptical of that too, which is kind of yeah, he's just a unique he's a unique combination of um I don't even know if optimist and pessimist are like the right words, but like um he has a like a a good like positive view of the human person and like humanity and like this especially in the in the light of of like Christ but he's also like just very sharp and very like quick to, um, to like acknowledge yeah. the darkness. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, just a unique perspective, I guess. So I would be curious to sit on this and like do the reverse. Like, all right, mimicking someone might be like a foundational sin error theory. But like, what? How? now that you've learned that in your own life or like, how have you thought about balancing that with like being true to yourself? Like when there is clearly like this status quo mimic the prestige, what everyone else is doing either by like doing the exact same thing or like doing the perfect opposite when the right answer is some form of like be true to yourself or, you know, follow your own calling have you ever noticed or it's like when you get off the the main tracks of life of what 
society or culture or your family or whatnot expect that that is a hard that you're like running up against this mimetic force um and i yeah like what is the positive way to like act given that a potential negative was mimicking others i think people our age are very skeptical of any sort of positive positive like possible positive of doing what other people are doing if that makes sense so but i feel like in some ways the kind of the idea of mimetic desire could also be a good thing so like some of my you know quote unquote myself being myself in some ways isn't a good thing because sometimes i just want to sit around and be lazy and watch tv and just be a slob yeah but like if I hang out with you three guys and you're all talking about how you're going to go exercise tomorrow, it's like, crap, maybe I, I should, I should, I should want to go exercise tomorrow. Yeah. And like, and you could, I mean, extrapolate that to whatever example you want. Right. So I don't know. I feel like in some ways it can almost be a positive thing as well in terms of, yeah, just helping us, I mean, become better, but so I feel like it's the difficulty then is kind of figuring out when it's positive versus when I should, I'm desiring something I shouldn't want. If that makes sense, I don't really know. Um, That's super fair. That yeah, matters, I was, but, yeah. <clears throat> I just felt like the way he talks about it and describes it, it's like a purely conflict-driven negative thing. And maybe it's in what ways isn't it? And what's the anecdote to it? The anecdote or the antidote? antidote. I just... Antidote. Okay, that's what slip. I thought you were going of for. But... Calling the kettle black, huh, Landon? <laughs> no, no, but I, I was, well, I have an anecdote for. <laughs> I wanted both, actually. No, but, uh... I wanted the anecdotal <laughs> antidote. Got, got it. Um, I mean, I, I think, and it, like, Gerard gets to this when he, especially when he talks about, um, I guess, just the. Um, I guess the way in which like uh, Christianity kind of subverts the mimesis and like how it Christianity is like the kind of hope, so to speak. Um, but it doesn't necessarily play out just cause uh, yeah, for various reasons, he says people don't, don't really have the guts to, to kind of do it, I guess. But, um, but like, yeah, I mean, certainly with my, like, discernment in terms of going into seminary, I would say is, like, the antidote, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, like, like the antidote of that is, like, I guess just authentic discernment, you know, where you're talking with people who you trust and people who are um, interested in you but not interested in their end result, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. You know, people aren't trying to convince you one way or the other, but people who are, um, yeah, yeah, people who have – yeah, who are just like kind of wise walls with which you can yeah. bounce your <laughs> your thoughts, your feelings, and desires yeah. off of, you know? Because um, without that, I mean, kind of like Mike and Ross have both alluded to, like, if it was just you and just yourself, you know, you that's a really fast path Correct. to go crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned kind of the second concept, so we'll listen, read... Uh... Um, the second idea here from Gerard. And so Christ's death on the cross 
frees humankind from this yes. deep, profound, inescapable, and largely hidden cycle of the scapegoating impulse. Yes. It oh, potentially it does. It does. And Christianity asserts certainly that it does, that it's the only true religion, and that it says the truth about man and about God. But very few people take these statements seriously, as you well know. And Why? they should take them Why? literally. Why? You have said well, it several points it's, now. It's obvious once you see it, it's the yeah. simplest. Christianity is different. And yet, and, and yet they we don't, don't want see it. it. They don't yeah. want it. But you, you know as much about that as I do. I mean, I, we just have to see the fact that they don't see both the they, you see, the Christians don't dare see the similarity because they are too timid. If you They're afraid them, that Christianity may be one may other May be myth. a myth. Therefore, they refuse to say the situation is the mythical one. But they say the truth about it and there is no more myth. Christianity destroys mythology. So, I think... We'll talk about this is generally the start of like the scapegoat mechanism, um, scapegoating as a, a final outcome of a lot of mimetic desire where um, I'll just throw it out there right now. There's all kinds of different words for scapegoating, um, bullying, panic, sacrificial lambs, shooting the messenger, um, more of the recent ones, probably victim blaming, victimization, uh, all that, all this stuff where we kind of kick each other under the, under the bus. Um, so what's going on here is Gerard is saying like, um, you know, there were all these myths at the time before Christianity. Like I've often heard like in discussing the Christian faith with, with atheists or others, it's like, oh, the flood story, that's in 10 other religions. Oh, like the way that, you know, creation happened, that's in other religions. But what what could be possible is like the Christian story is it looks and feels kind of like um, those other stories, whether they're they're mythical or real. Um, but the difference is like the perfect God at the cross, that final act, like was purely innocent and like got all of the blame and um, had yeah, took the fall for everyone and did not have to. Um, and that that is the most unique thing in the Christian faith. Can I give it, a shot to bridging the gap between this sure, one and yeah. the last segment? Well, how do we tie them okay. together? So we identify mimetic desire as this distinctly human trait. Okay, So along with that, this distinctly human trait comes conflict slash micro wars you could say that existed in the hundreds of thousands of years of human existence okay now what he expresses somewhere in the course of the speech is that with that being the case all we can have then is conflict but why don't we have that why do we actually manage to not yeah. have conflict and this is where the scapegoat mechanism comes in play. He says that the scapegoat mechanism is the fundamental reason 
uh, why civilization is able to exist despite mimetic theory or mimetic, so mimetic desire. Yeah. And he explains it this way. Is that we observe in all of these ancient myths that what happens is that you have these two communities who disagree about something, where they should dig the next well, you know, how many wives person A should have. They can't agree on these two these things going on there. But what they can agree on is who is the guiltiest person in the community. Who is most responsible for the violence and trauma that their community is experiencing. And so this person becomes the scapegoat, the sacrificial lamb. And it's obviously murky, exactly the like psychological and metaphysical connections between this person and whatever problems they're having. But the point that uh, Girard makes is that it simply feels yeah. good to have a scapegoat yeah. and right. kill him. Or her, maybe. Who knows? And or they kill cancel him, them. Or her. And <laughs> they cancel them, maybe. They in the woke, the woke communities. <laughs> <laughs> that don't have the death penalty and what happens is this profound cohesiveness right and that is what makes civilization uh, yeah. possible and he says that all of these ancient myths are not myths in a sense they reflect actual things that happened and how I understand it is when these myths no longer become sufficiently binding to still have a civilization, a new myth needs to be generated. And so this is the cycle of all of these ancient myths. Um, uh, Bishop Barron in that nine-minute video on Girard, I think, gives a good modern contemporary example to this scapegoat idea is that you have two academics in some discipline and they can't agree on anything within the scope of their discipline but what they can agree on is the third academic who's just absolutely wrong about yeah. whatever right yeah. i mean that's yeah. exactly the same thing yeah. at play here excellent tie-in that was well synthesized thanks so, like, I don't know, did you guys buy, I mean, that's a big claim, like the idea that, okay, every myth in ancient civilization is founded upon this scapegoating idea. Like, that is, that is what Gerard is claiming, that this is what makes civilization I mean, possible. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't Prior say no, to all, Christianity. The, <clears throat> all of the myths, but I think you can look around today and, like, we use scapegoats everywhere. I don't know why when you were talking, like, it flashed across my mind. Like Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill, right? Like, like. Oh, I've, I'm re-listening like, to that. Like they're <laughs> like something went wrong, and like they needed, yeah, they needed to, like, have a, a victim there. So. The uh, the over the over under for the Mars Hill reference was surpassed. So all of those betters who bet the over have won. <laughs> that was just like one example of, I don't know, a like cancelable or you were talking about conflict like the thing the only thing we can agree on is like someone needs to be outed and that seems like a yeah that is the easiest path yeah you're right it's like yeah. getting rid of the least common denominator um but yeah the cancel culture idea i think it i think it is the exact same thing it's right yeah, yeah you can't agree on anything meaningful but what you can agree on is uh this this person mm -hmm. they're bad 
I don't know if I have an answer to Mike's question about, you know, do I buy it about every myth having that? Just because I don't know if I could just start rattling off every myth and confidently state, you know, oh, this was the scapegoat here and here. But Mm -hmm. when he was talking about the idea of the scapegoat, that for me, I don't know if it was more clear for you guys, was very like immediate, like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, As opposed to where the the mimetic desire, I mean, kind of like I said, it just, it took me a second to really, I feel like, follow what he was saying, maybe more. But with the scapegoat stuff, like, immediately, I was just like, oh, yeah, that, like, I feel like I see that everywhere. Um, And I think maybe, like, in his type of, in, like, listening in him speak, I feel like you saw, you're seeing it big like the big scapegoat or these you know this is the where mimetic desire has to lead you have to have a a scapegoat in order to have societies and blah 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 but i feel like i think i see the scapegoat i mean even on super small scale i feel like we're constantly making scapegoats Um, yeah i mean i you can start right i mean my boss did something you know you want to get a team of people talking together on the same page, the boss says something that makes them all mad, you know, and all of a sudden the boss is the bad guy. And I feel like it, you can like see how it almost creates unity in a way. Um, yeah. I, I was, I actually thought of like, what was it? Mel Brooks's speech in the movie, the miracle. And I'm sure there's other sports examples too. Like he intentionally just starts yelling and screaming like he's the bad guy. And then like he leaves the room and makes a funny quip. And like, it was an intentional, it was an intentional choice by him. Yeah. He wasn't actually angry about it. Right. And yet the locker room's going nuts and they come out all together. You know, it's like he used that as a way to unify his team. To rally them. Um, Made himself. Yes, I know. I just, the more I started thinking about it, I was like, I feel like I see that all over the place. Um, Anyway, that, that that just jumped out at me, I feel like. That's a good positive example. Like when you're willing to, you know, really perhaps when you're willing to like be like Christ and sacrifice yourself for the good of the hockey team or like if you're willing to like model the scapegoat and you don't care about being the least common denominator, like that is probably when the formula works in like group smaller situations and also being the innocent scapegoat too because that's like a key distinction gerard makes is that like it's not just that jesus is a scapegoat because there's a million scapegoats but he's like he is the innocent one like he's the one who actually had the has like a perfect case for not being the person to blame you know for this sort of kind of weird conflict between jews and romans and all the people who wanted him dead you know um so like yeah he has the best case for it and yet he chose it you know so like that's i guess that's the other side too is not just um you know just being like innocent and having that to back you up yeah so to put sort of uh a fine point that might be like helpful yeah gerard also claims with these pagan myths that that there was something in this cohesiveness which is generated from the scapegoat mechanism that people did believe. I mean, this is sort of a big claim to claim what people thought, you know, over the 
thousands upon thousands of iterations that the cohesiveness that which came about through this scapegoating sacrificial lamb thing was something religious right um yeah and like Matt was saying, just like make it super obvious that, yeah, the what is the same about Christianity is this is, yeah, in a certain sense, a sacrifice being made by the community. But it's it's the wrong decision. Like Matt said, it's it's someone who is innocent and it's told from the perspective of the victim. The victim is is the hero in the story rather than the community. <clears throat> as I understand it. Do we have any other notes or thoughts on what scapegoating means? I'll, I'll put the challenge out there. So I understand what um, Gerard is saying and what makes Christianity different, that that the scapegoat is innocent. We should have to like, take a drink every time we say scapegoat. <laughs> And it's fascinating, it's interesting, I get what he's saying, but why is it that important? Like, why can't it just be another myth where it's, like, just different in that way? Yeah, you would, if you were lining it up, you would be curious to, like, go research and see if there were any. I've heard, I feel like I've heard that's, that is the unique part of Christianity, though, like... There's no other religions where God sacrificed himself. Um, but why does it matter specifically? Why Why does that end all myths? So what I think it would be an interesting, maybe we can pivot to like the apocalyptic stuff because that's like, just admit so, that we don't know the answer to yeah, the question. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, honestly, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it's, it's, I think it is an important dynamic. I don't think it's, yeah, I mean, I suppose I don't think it's the only dynamic at play, right? I think that, um, I guess, yeah, I would, I would perhaps criticize Gerard, or I don't even know if I'm interpreting Gerard correctly. I've barely like really scratched the surface with him, but like, if you were to say all desire is purely mimetic. And, you know, that seems a little deterministic. It seems a little like um, like there's no autonomy to anything, um, which, yeah, So, I don't, but I don't know if that's a right interpretation. Um, and, like, if you are to – if you are going to go down that route, then it's um, – yeah, I mean it would – I feel like you could – if you were to take that and drive it to the logical – or to, like, the – just to scrutinize it to the nth degree, it yeah, it just seems like an untenable position, I guess, to be like everything is purely whatever. But I don't know if that's what he's saying. I couldn't tell you that, I suppose. But just briefly, that that is one of the criticisms that I read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, yeah. So I, I think that that seems fair. Is it like a very strong and um, maybe like? I don't know if you would say fund. I mean, I don't know what other mechanisms are are out there that you would kind of put on the same part, but it does seem to be a very profound one. You know what I mean? Like that much, I would certainly give him, um, and certainly like, yeah, be like, yeah, that's that's an important thing to acknowledge. Um, and like, I guess maybe another arrow pointing to like the truth of Christianity. You know, like I suppose like when you know something's true, it's like a lot of things are pointing at it from different angles, and like. 
All right, so you've got that as like another big but arrow. Didn't it in myths like when we think of myths, we think of like ancient tribes and honestly like mythologies that are before Christ. Like the only like it was the last one, perhaps, in in the literary volume. Yeah, there is something to that, which they did make a point of, that pagan myths are no longer tenable, right? Like, no one right. believes in Zeus anymore, yeah. really, you know? And why exactly is that? What's the relationship between that and it's like, Islam is the only one that came up 600 years later. Yeah, and he made some really interesting um, commentaries on Islam, yeah, which I'm not capable of re-expressing here but <laughs> they were interesting let me tell you <laughs> i think it was pretty i don't know i don't know if you guys like his small comment when he said the interviewer kind of tried to say now we have to establish a scope of time here blah 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 and he was kind of like no like i don't really care about that i'm a theoretician or something i don't remember what he called himself but just <clears throat> and i'm not going anywhere this is more just an observation like it's pretty impressive to just be able to, like, think, like, he came up with this idea. It didn't seem so much that he, I don't, it didn't at least seem to me that he observed this and then took that somewhere. It seemed more like he came up with the idea of right. mimetic desire and then, like, thought, like, figured out in theory that the answer was scapegoating. And then it's like, oh, yeah, you can see this everywhere, which, like, gives a lot of credence to this theory that you developed. And I was just kind of impressed. I was like, I don't think I've ever, I mean, I'm obviously not uh, all the list, any credential that they did for him at the start of that episode, but or the start of the, the speech. But um, I was just kind of impressed by that, just how he actually seemed to have an original thought God. that he just was able to then provide a solution to, and then it just happened to ring super true when you actually like look at the world. Well, obviously you guys didn't read the critiques deeply <laughs> enough on Wikipedia, but this is not completely right. his original idea. He's definitely the most profound conveyor of it, but someone did precede him before with at least a partial uh, ownership of the idea. So just in fairness to that right, gentleman or gentlewoman. <laughs> <laughs> um what do you guys have thoughts on the apoc how's it all end does he make prophetic predictions i was gonna ask a, i was just gonna ask a question just to keep diving in and trying to get a better understanding and i mean are there any desires or maybe it's just a, maybe it's a kind of a semantics thing a little bit what you're how you're classifying things but that don't seem to fit this idea of mimetic desire. So, and at least when I think of the word desire, like for some things, I do think it really seemed to ring true, but then I don't know. And maybe it's not the same thing, but like when I think of food or something like that, hunger, like that doesn't seem to be something I'm copying. That seems to be something just, I don't know if internal is the right word, intrinsic. I don't know the right word, but that I, I think Gerard would say those are animal. Those aren't right. desires. Those are like just instincts. So almost know? more of an urge. The only reason I was going to bring it up because I feel like I've heard that makes sense with the the animal ones, but I've, I feel like C.S. Lewis, 
I feel like we could have referenced him his abolition of man a little bit with the capitalism thing, but to take him a different route. Sure. Um, he uses, I believe, and it's been a while since I've read Mere Christianity, but doesn't he use the fact that we have certain desires that seem universal almost as evidence for belief in God in the first place? So, um, like, I'm hungry, therefore there must be food. That's like the animal one, but it also seems like we... So I feel like, if I remember correctly, he used other type of things like if you say, you know, I'm hungry, therefore there has to be food, you could almost look at, I have this, you know, we have this desire for timelessness, there must be eternity. I don't know, like things like that. Um, Sure. Almost as, not proofs, but reasons to kind of start to think that God may exist. So that was one thing I thought of that I was like, that seems to be somewhat at odds more with the mimetic desire type thought process yeah well i mean i guess the universality of it i could see it slicing two ways one is you can say it's universal because it's an instinct or it's this sort of individual thing that everyone has Um, but then you could also say well is it universal because everyone else wants it you know um it's like maybe like yeah to some degree that might be a chicken and the egg type of thing um which is kind of two ways, you know, two sides of the same coin, maybe. I don't know. Um, Yeah, I guess that that to me seems like a little bit of a, I don't know if there's an answer, I guess. I I think I found an answer to our significance of Christianity as a um, unique scapegoat uh, mechanism here that someone wrote in the notes they just (laughs) forgot about. (laughs) Uh, I'm just going to read the paragraph here. Uh, it's very it's short enough. Scapegoating serves as a psychological relief for a group of people, as we've discussed here. Gerard contends that this is what happened in the narrative of Jesus of Nazareth, the central figure in Christianity. Yes, we got that. The difference between between the scapegoating of Jesus and others, Gerard believes, is that in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, he is shown to be an innocent victim, right? Because, yeah. Since, obviously, Christianity claims the resurrection took place in actual history, um, it, it has the capacity to influence history, right? In the resurrection of the dead, uh, Jesus from dead, he is shown to be an innocent victim. Humanity is thus made aware of its violent tendencies, and the cycle is broken. Thus, Gerard's work is significant as a reconstruction of the atonement theory the atonement theory is the this is how you explain the mechanism for salvation right this is how salvation works that's what atonement theory is does that make sense so one of us wrote that (laughs) wasn't me down at the bottom You're just copy and pasting. Oh, I'm gonna look like I did so, <laughs> so much I guess, work. I mean, at least according to that, it's it's more that he turned it upside because he kind of did the opposite way. It made us aware of it in the first place, so we don't really have a need for it anymore. Is that somewhat what you said? Not exactly what I said, but I think that's a re- that's a reasonable takeaway. I think maybe one takeaway I can sort of have is that it bridges the gap between 
the idea of original sin entering history and in Christ, or the the redemptive act of uh, Christ's death and resurrection. Um, obviously, the way that's communicated there in mystery persons paragraph, it it basically reduces isn't is a sort of demeaning word, but it does attribute the um, I guess you might say the grace of the resurrection to a purely psychological phenomenon that it's like oh look we observed what we did and now this is this is who we actually are yeah and that that is, that is an interesting idea for sure right and I, I always think this is interesting <laughs> um, you know in in scripture or in the gospels during easter or lent we always read about how the jews were responsible for killing christ and always like man that sounds like so bad like yeah maybe paul was a little bit of a of a racist but the like modern commentaries right that you see in, in the missalettes is something like no it was not just the jews it was that we all contributed to the crucifixion of christ in a sense yeah i don't know there's there's just something to that a being able to believe in a very real way your own capacity for violence right because with these other pagan myths like there's no record, as far as I understand, there's no recognition of your own capacity for violence. It's like something magical happened and now we're hunky-dory for a little while. Versus in the crucifixion, you acknowledge your own profound shortcomings, right? This might be a little bit of a pivot, but Ross, you mentioned something about C.S. Lewis and like capitalism and I guess, what were where were you going with that? Because I think that's, that to me was like an interesting – well, it, it didn't really come out in the speech itself, but it did come out in some of the um, uh, Jonathan B. video stuff about just like that mechanism. But like, yeah, I guess what were you thinking about in regards to C.S. Lewis and capitalism? I'm curious um, about that. Just when we were talking can, – can you think and we take a two-minute break and get yeah, water yeah. or <clears throat> bathroom, whatever? Yeah. I haven't had to pee once during this whole podcast. <laughs> this is a record. As we get older, we're going to have to take way more pee breaks. <laughs> Freshened up. Oh, Mike didn't have his headphones on. Freshened up, Mike. Yep. All right, Ross, hit it. <laughs> Do you remember the question? <laughs> All right, so yeah, so I feel like when we started talking for a bit about how it seems as if capitalism seemingly gives an outlet to some of the what would have previously led to conflict from mimetic desire. So kind of like we said, right? At one point in history, you're the biggest, baddest guy in the room you're going to, it's going to lead to this conflict or violence and you're going to want to be a tyrant and all these things. But in modern day, it might make you some businessman or I don't know, something else. But so in some ways it almost, we were talked a little bit ago about how capitalism seems like it has given this more positive outlet to some of these desires and the consequences of them. But I, what I was going to ask then and just didn't, was kind of, it doesn't seem at least to me, that doesn't seem like a long-term fix, though, 
simply because those that it's still there's still going to be conflict right so it's almost like we've it almost seems like a more of a temporary pause on not necessarily i don't know about war but um maybe war i guess but and it made me think a little bit about our last episode with c.s lewis and abolition of man and he talked about how anytime we think we're conquering nature we're just using nature to conquer someone else if that makes sense so mm-hmm. capitalism is still like I don't know I feel like I kind of thought about that as you know it's still going to pit people against each other you know um somebody's still going to be on top and do better so somebody's going to be doing worse and that seems like it's going to inevitably lead to to conflict as well so anyway that was kind of my I started trying to think through those thoughts a little bit and I think somebody said something and it went a different way and I didn't really have a good way to say it but so that was kind of what I was going to pose was it does it seem like capitalism is a actually a solution to this kind of you know what what's going to end up in conflict or is it more just a temporary pause well i think that's that's the yeah i don't know that's the part of the the yeah that's a part of gerard's thought that i maybe want to get into a little bit more just cuz um yeah, I mean, I think he does paint. I feel like me, most Americans kind of see capitalism as this like sort of uh, badge of honor. I I don't know if that's the right way to think of it, but this you know in a rather positive light. Um, even even amidst like the kind of popularity of like democratic socialism and and that sort of phraseology, I guess. But like. Um, but no one lives in a democratically socialist way, right? Like no one just gives their money to the government mm, just because yeah. they think the government's that great at doing good things with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like everyone has the chance to live in a democratic socialist world if they want to just give their money, give pay more taxes, right? If they just voluntarily give money to the government. The government's not going to say no, right? But no one does that, right? Right. Um, so we all keep our money and we all spend it and doing whatever the heck we want with it, Right. Um, so we all kind of like live this out, right? Live this sort of like capitalist hooray sort of mentality. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that is, um, yeah, I guess that was like one of the more intriguing aspects of it because like, yeah, I guess I don't know how tenable it is long-term, you know, like. I think there's a lot of good that's come from it, certainly. Like, yeah, What's medicine, tenable long-term? Like, quality of life is improved. Like, we can pretty much... Oh. I'm saying I'm not sure capitalism is tenable long-term. Like, at least that's something to think about. Then, no, you were predicting about. the end of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth thinking about. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm predicting right it or not. I'm just saying... Matt is predicting I'm just... <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. like Matt, are you voting for Bernie Sanders? <laughs> oh, you go from one extreme to another. So, here, so here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Because, like, I don't think capitalism should only be seen as not socialism. You know what I mean? Like, I think there – perhaps there's a third way, which might be something, like, akin to – I don't know. Small – like, small community, just self-sufficient – units i don't know if you want to think of it that way that would 
whatever. I, I don't know what that would look like. This is just a, I, so basically get rid of interstates. Um, I don't know. So that every well, community is independent. <laughs> well, yeah. I again, this is just kind of very abstract thought. This is very abstract thought, but. Takes two days of travel to get together with you guys for our camping trip. Well, yeah. If we, yeah, I mean, maybe we'd have more PTO if we were in, uh, <laughs> in that yeah. sort of say, you know. But, uh, but yeah, I, because it, it is. I think he does have really, really interesting thought, and I want to dig more. I want to dig more into it, um, just on a personal level, just because it, it. Yeah, I, I think there is something uniquely like capitalism has accelerated a lot. But it doesn't change our human nature, right? It's accelerated our capacity to cure people. It's accelerated our capacity to destroy people. You know, it's it's accelerated our capacity to communicate truths and lies. You know, Um, it seems more of a, uh, yeah, just like a gas pedal than it is a steering wheel of, like, where we are as a human race. Um, and I think that's the thing that uh, Gerard gets at in like a really powerful way and dare I say prophetic way um, that like, yeah, as much as like um, conservatives like kind of have tied their horse to that cart um, and as much as like even non-conservatives have tied their horse to that cart, like we've all tied their, you know, all of Western society has tied their horses to that cart. Um but like, yeah. I mean, certainly we've reaped some benefits. But like, yeah. I don't know how. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Gerard's thought is is interesting, at least in in, in so far as he's like, uh, yeah, rather critical of that, uh, or of like the direction. You know, like this is just, it's a less violent, more tasteful way of uh, scapegoating and you know abusing each other. Yeah, to kind of, I think, <clears throat> make your point a little bit more clear, uh, yeah, capitalism as, as a virtue, which, I mean, ties in with the metaphor that you're the gas pedal versus the steering wheel sort of thing, right? Yeah, because there is something that is just very satisfying in in the doctrine that to have a good life is to make a lot of money and be an entrepreneur or doctor or lawyer, you know, whatever. Um, and I've, I mean, I think another aspect of it too is that communicating that difference just it it can feel like just feel like very fuzzy or wishy washy. It's like it's much simpler to say make a lot of money, blah blah blah, you know, versus. What, what my brother said the other day, uh, which was great to, to my niece, Addie, you know, money is to be a means, not, not a way when, when uh, discerning, discerning the future of your life. You know, just something as simple as that, iterated over millions of families in the United States, can make such a profound difference. But, you know, is that like a super sexy thing to say? Well, it can seem sort of inconsequential, but... It almost seems yeah. like, and maybe Christianity is, maybe this <clears throat> comes from a little bit of, you know, the revelations that we have gotten from since Christ, but um, when you say things like that, I feel like everybody would say they agree with that statement. 
like if you said you know money is a a, a means not the, I don't know how you worded it but um yeah but a like, means no one not would a say way that. like if I say yeah money doesn't make you happy everybody be like oh yeah I know I know I know and yet yeah man maybe it's the fact that there's this thing called mimetic desire but we all still seem to live like it is the way, if that makes sense. Like everybody would like that Facebook post and then everybody is going to go Google yeah. at someone's big, nice house. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. Except us, of course, but, um, yeah, not true. Yeah. All of us are poor except Landon. <laughs> <laughs> Only a rich person would say that. <laughs> final passage what are we feeling well yeah i mean let's sort of segue from yeah how do we get from christianity as this flipping on its head of the pagan myth to the apocalypse to bruce willis having to save us from this asteroid (laughs) from dotty was the name of the asteroid how do we get there? I mean, there's there's rocket ships and Ben Affleck, and <laughs> there's a the, we get we, there's a slingshot maneuver around the moon. <clears throat> yeah, I love that scene. Like twenty two thousand miles per hour, and there you know, like bodies flying. Oh, that was great. Right. And now the apocalypse. I'll just say something brief to introduce this because it's not going to take very long. You know how I understood is like, oh well. Yeah, you have the Christian myth in the literary sense of the term uh, entering into history, having this capacity to redeem humanity from these pagan myths that, yeah, and, um, but conflict continues to exist and continues to be managed in these other ways through capitalism and, and law and order. And uh, he comments on some things with the United States and China, which is, as Matt used the word earlier, prophetic. And um, yeah, so we're in we're in the end times, folks. Season three will be our last. Real quick, before we jump, real quick, before we jump too much in the apocalypse, I think it might be helpful. Like, I feel like we've used the word like the Christian myth a lot, and I think when a lot of people hear that, I think they, I think a lot of people probably associate myth with untrue story a fictional story fair i think most i mean i don't know maybe i'm wrong i probably would have thought that before like if somebody says myth um i know tolkien's got some stuff on myth too that would but either way um so i think it might be fair if we give a quick like how what do we mean by that like does because obviously in this setting we're not saying that that means it's not true if that makes sense yeah yeah, I think the meaning of, of leaning into Christian myth or wherever it's compared to like, oh, that similar type story is in a Hindu religion or this like native culture, um, which which you do hear a lot. Um, since we're all familiar with COVID, like the Christian myth is like the vaccine that kills the virus. So the COVID-19 vaccine was designed to look like COVID, like all vaccines are. Like it goes in, it has the same uh, biological shape as the disease, but in fact, it's the antidote, not the anecdote, um, 
to the virus that killed it. And so the same way, if you would ever hear like, oh, Christianity isn't real because like it's just the next myth. It's like, well, it has some really key turning points of like inversing most myths um, around and it it's the last myth that while it does have similarities, um, it overturns them. And it, that was like by design, like God... Um, you know, made those similarities because that's what humans understood as like oral traditions and stories that we told ourselves to um, put it in that type of vessel uh, that would transcend other myths. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, C.S. <clears throat> similarly, C.S. Lewis says something about, well, you know, I think this was in uh, Mere Christianity. You know, like, yeah, why are all these, there are these other similar stories of a dying and rising god or king or something like that. And I think C.S. Lewis's exact words is something like, and throughout all of history, God gave us these sweet dreams throughout different civilizations and cultures so that we could recognize it when it comes or something like that, which, which sort, of, sort of makes makes sense. Yeah, sort of a divine pedagogy in a way yeah i mean when i use the word myth christian myth is i mean that applies to any story that has like a sort of transcendental quality whether or not it's factually true gerard though admits or doesn't admit he seems to proclaim that christianity is kind of like the break that's that's where the scapegoating cycle breaks right or at least it has that capacity and he says he doesn't it doesn't or it hasn't right um, but he, I wasn't sure I really understood why he seemed to say like something to the effect of Christians are worried that, that it'll be a, perceived as a myth. So they don't really describe it in, in a scapegoating mechanism. Yeah. And then he said, others just dismiss it as a myth. But it, I guess, yeah, I don't know if I'm understanding that correctly, or maybe it's just like, that's kind of the factor of original sin and the world has to end at some yeah. point. Yeah. There was some nuance in those lines where it was like he was speaking to the intellectuals or the atheists. Like they would say, like, it's just another myth to which he would say, like, look at it. It's the opposite of all myths. Um, if you like read the story in the text and then to Christians, he does say, like, um, essentially, like Christians would never admit that because that is admitting that it's man-made or like too similar to fake stuff um which i think why that kind of like that vaccine um analogy kind of made a lot of sense to me like it looks like it so that um you can like catch a lot of people up in it, it it's similar but there is really key differences he sort of i think answers our question like in the in the speech i think but to make sure i'm thinking of like quite correctly what you guys are saying so it seems almost like it's Christianity should fix this, and yet these problems still exist, right? So World War II still happened, even after Christ and stuff. Um, so, I mean, he says later on, uh, does Rene Girard believe that there is any way to turn the tide? And he responds, yes. It's about the only thing he gave us a solution the apocalyptic thing was kind of um what is i'm trying to look at it the time of the line he says 
the time when you no longer know if it is nature where this is hurting you or if it is man himself who is helping the apocalyptic forces. I think Matt put, and I thought that too, like similar to the end of the abolition of man, um, it, you know, it seems like kind of a yeah. similar trajectory of where, you know, C.S. Lewis and pro- prophesied in a way that that's where we're going to end up. And then I feel like Rene Girard is kind of saying a similar thing here. I feel like there's more here on the apocalypse, but... Yeah. I mean, he does make some, I think, fairly specific predictions of mimesis in the U.S. and China playing out and being fairly destructive, um, given just the pent-up conflict energy. But I don't know if that's that important. Yeah. So, yeah, the U.S.-China anecdote was really interesting and a little bit unnerving, admittedly, right? Because in 2007, he said that something very, um, we'll we'll make it as benign as possible, destabilizing is going to occur between the United States and China. Sino-American relations, if you want to use a fancy word at your next cocktail party. (laughs) He said this in 2007. When, you know, people, when, when all the boomers were drinking their white wine at their Sunday afternoon New Age church, and they're like, man, the world is great. I mean, we're riding, riding high. Um, and he makes this prediction that other academics said, that's silly, that's not believable. And yet here we are 15 years later things are becoming more tenuous between the United States and China, despite there never having occurred any real, like, um, you know, border issue, yeah, or human, I mean, yeah, China has human rights issue, but not exactly the forefront of stuff here. It's just, it's, it's just like trade-based, you know, you got some stuff being like, percolating in from russia and ukraine and such and yeah but there's not enough like silicon for our for our chips in our cars right it's like it's this slow trickle which he sort of he sort of predicted um rather than as is referenced in uh some of the content we looked at the liberalizing of trade between the united states and china being like this Mm -hmm. this salvation of globalism (laughs) That's trademarked. Yeah. You can't reuse that line. <laughs> Which, I, if I recall, and I didn't listen to the entire speech between those two guys, John and David, I forget who the two guys were, but um, like they used kind of the example of law being a way to use violence. Yeah, law. To control violence. Do you guys remember that part? This. So... The state, the monopoly, state or the law, law has a monopoly on violence. violence. So in the yeah. United right, right. <clears throat> because if I do anything, mm-hmm. the law can do something more to me. But unlike the international yeah. stuff, that doesn't really exist. Um, so just kind of a yeah. So I don't know. So what's it was the, a great theory. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a key point there. There's no greater like there's no law above U.S. and China because so. With that said, yeah. like, is war the only, yeah, yeah, the inevitable outcome? Is that if that makes sense? I don't know. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And would that be the apocalypse? Yeah. Yep. 
That sort of sounds like a... Final question. Final bell question. I, okay. What is this? At least I had the guts to say something. (laughs) Matt peed in his pants when you gave us that look. (laughs) Yeah. Final bell question. Go for it. Do we agree, or is yep. there a different final bell question? It's the final bell. Bing, bing, bing. It's 15. One more round. There's no stopping this now. This is our round. No stopping now. We're starting. We don't stop. All your strength, all your power, all your love, everything you've got. This is all life here. Do it now. Repeat the question. <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead and restate it. So without a monopoly of... <clears throat> without this, there being a state to have a monopoly of violence um, on a more global scale, is war the inevitable outcome of this or any sort of international dispute like this? And as Girard claims, with the advent of the atomic bomb, the end of civilization... Since obviously in World War II, the United States was the only one with an atomic bomb. It just sounds too specific. Like, I get that he's got some very fundamental theories, but then to have the end of those theories, like, result in a fairly specific prediction between two countries, it's like, I don't know. We don't know the the day or the time that something like that may happen. Or where, or who, or how. Or if, or when, or now. I mean, we know if. <laughs> I would, so I'm going to postulate a little bit of a historical thought experiment here in preface to my answer, which I have yet to formulate 100%. Just keep rapping like light in a mic or two. <laughs> so Christianity theoretically ends the scapegoating, right? So the- Christianity almost, in a sense, yeah. makes a scapegoat out of paganism, right? So mm-hmm. like paganism is, mm, is sure. done and over with. We've moved past that, right? So Christianity, you know, struggles for a few hundred years, but eventually, you know, Constantine frees it up, makes it the official religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity rules the day for, I don't know, 1,200 years. So, to, you know, at least in Europe and part most of the Middle East at that mm-hmm. point, maybe. I don't know. I suppose Islam kind of wrote, you know, Ottoman Empire or whatever. But, so, then, at least with Europe, they decide that the scientist kind of, that the priest is the new scapegoat. Right or the the Christian is the scapegoat, this old school church thing that is, is holding us back from science, which is the new thing, right? So science gradually become comes to rule the day, right? It's kind of where we're at now. And well, can can I? That's where we were at fifteen years ago, where science was still the fountain of truth. Is science not ruling the day anymore? Mm, I would I would debate that, but we'll we'll just play with the idea. Yeah, go yeah. on. So, yeah, up, no up. matter what the the precise year, 
science stops ruling the day. I feel like we are at a meshing point where science, where people are, yeah, I mean, there is a legitimate, I think in some ways legitimate and other ways kind of irrational critique of, of science at large. Um, but, like, it, what's going to replace science? You know, as, or what will scapegoat science? And, like, that's what I'm not really sure yet, which makes me think, I don't know if it's necessarily just going to be U.S. China that like puts an end to things. I feel like there's been scapegoating since, and like since he admits like Christianity ha- Christianity has the potential to like break that cycle, but it hasn't, and I don't know if it will. Just you know, original sin and concupiscence and like all of the things that have kind of made humans do bad things for all of the world. Yeah, it seems too specific, and I feel like, I don't know, I guess I just got a hunch that there's something that's going to scapegoat science. And might I suggest reading The Canticle of Leibowitz? Um, Mike, have you read it? I've read a portion yeah, of it. Yeah, I feel like that is, to some degree, yeah, I feel like that might be another prophetic book. Um, Scapegoating science, that is such a big concept um well to to counter or comment on matt's thoughts precisely um i mean i would say hopefully we're not misusing the word scapegoating by this (laughs) (laughs) ross is on the ground because he's drank a hundred times since we've said don't worry i'm in my bunker i'm fine down here (laughs) (laughs) um but let's let's just play with it. The scapegoat of science, if you will, would be um would be far left or far right thought, I would say, whether it is um election doubting on on the far right or um or critical race theory and its its cousins uh, on the far left, right? Where it doesn't matter what science has to say in the form of like statistics with with election fraud or on the other side of it with with statistics regarding critical race theory it's no this is what is true Hmm. um yeah that that, that'd be my my counter to so yeah i don't know just an interesting (laughs) this is not my final response i'm just simply rebutting um isn't well never mind it's not that interesting (laughs) (laughs) okay i will get my final bell answer though and then landon can have his final bell to bring us home for season two oh man that's i I just sort of like felt something inside like the end of season two dude season three it's gonna be wild we'll probably be a part of china by then (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, I mean, I, I I sort of get what he's saying. the The idea that that conflict is is inevitable, and it sort of get, there there is no global state to sort of manage manage interstate conflict or internation conflict. And we obviously now have the capacity to physically destroy each other many times over. Right between uh, a number of superpowers. <clears throat> okay, so we could accept that is truth. 
um, or reasonable, very realistic possibility, but at the same time, not be completely debilitated with anxiety or fear. Because, okay, so the atom bomb, nuclear weapons, they've existed for, you know, 80 years, essentially. And humanity has existed for 400,000 years or whatever, something, something like that, right? So... You, you can you can conceive of us being in the end times for another 2,000 years, 3,000 years, where we have these nuclear weapons sitting in our holsters, um, knowing that they're, they're a possibility there. I think another sort of like constructive thought where we can still take Gerard's thought seriously, but not, again, be worried that the world's about to end is the idea that okay imagine forget about nuclear weapons pretend that every or not every but you know third well i don't even know how many countries have nuclear weapons that'd be a good trivia question my my guess do you guys want to make guesses then we'll look it up 16 no you wait again <laughs> make a guess before so we're all ready i'm now sorry i had to say it. my guess i was gonna guess probably like 20 though Oh, of course, right by mine. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was mimetic desire. <laughs> Later, it looks like he's just Andrew, looking, it are you looking it up. I am not. <clears throat> um, I guess he's just not committed to the podcast. Texting someone. <laughs> countries with nukes. Matt, Matt, do you have a guess? How many countries have nuclear weapons? Texas definitely has some. <laughs> How many? Uh, 57. Okay, okay. I said 20. 16. Ross said 16. 11. Final answer? Mm -hmm. Or what's what's the answer? Someone looking it up? Steve. Alexa. Steve. Steve. <laughs> producer Steve. It says nine countries. Wow, that's way less. Oh, we're good. We're good for another 10,000 years. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So, but I was, I was in the middle of my final bell question. <laughs> oh, but okay, so let's pretend, rather than there be nuclear weapons at stake, let's just imagine that these, now we know, nine countries have a button, you know, at the president's desk that it's the button, you hit the button, it's end of world. That's it. But at least you you pulled the trigger, right? That's basically what's at stake. Like the world ends, but at least you weren't like a chicken about it. You you ended on your own terms. Would any country in the a country's leader in the right mind push that button, right? Because e even Kim Jong Un understands the con I believe the consequences if he launched a nuclear weapon at the United States, like. That's that's not going to end well for the world. Maybe it'd be a little bit different because North Korea is such a a weaker country. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm not bringing world war on us by saying that. Versus if we're China versus U.S. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, that that that's sort of sort of my thought that superpowers are conscientious enough of the risks regarding nuclear war that. It's just very unlikely that we have. It would be like the only believable way would be if the metaphor you're like you're bleeding out, and it's just a matter of maintaining your dignity. 
Which I don't know. Maybe, maybe that is a realistic realistic scenario. Landon. Well, I I started off with my answer. I thought the his prediction seemed a little too specific. I'm gonna agree with Landon, and I guess everybody. <laughs> uh, I think I don't. I feel like it's like I don't know. So again, what were the two guys' names? Dave and John. Okay. So like he gave the yeah. it's Gaius and Tidius. <laughs> they gave the example of the Cuban Missile Crisis and Russia was cut off communications and and the submarine and they needed three guys they all they had to unanimously vote yes to shoot the nuclear weapon and which would have effectively potentially or could have started World War Three and ended the world and two guys said yes and one guy said no. So like like literally one person in in that instance. Um, was able to save, you know, sort of in a way, save the world. So I feel like Gerard's kind of answer we mentioned earlier, like behaving like Christians, it's like, well, yeah, you really just need somebody to actually act how they're supposed to, and that can have pretty big consequences. Um, anybody else pit, remember the Dark Knight movie here? Anybody else when they're about to, uh, like, yeah, the Joker yeah. thinks that the they're thing. gonna blow each other up and he's gonna win, and but like they behave as they should and nobody pushes the button and turns out, you know, Gotham gets to live another day. Um, so I feel like I, I just, yeah, we, we have the capacity to do that. Um, if we, if we choose to do so. So I guess I still have enough hope and that we'll, that we will do so at least for a while. Well, this speech ends with uh, a reading from Luke about the Christmas story. Um, Final chapter, Luke 2. And they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Suddenly there was an angel and a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and earth peace, goodwill towards men. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the speech guys. Take a look at Rene Girard, Google him, look him up, grapple with these concepts, and thanks for listening. <laughs> and drinking. <laughs> with us? <laughs> and thinking. And thinking. You said it. You didn't say it That's right, though, either. You say. I said, and drinking. And, and with us. You let's, said let's start thinking. that over. Let's just start that over. And thinking, and my dad wants us to add one more thing. Be safe out there. <laughs> All right. Let me let Wait, me handle right. that. Let me handle so you're that. You're doing the drinking. Okay. I'm doing the thinking. Ross is yeah. with us. All right. Yeah. Hey, it's been a great show, folks. Thanks for drinking and thinking with us. Hey, be safe out there. It's been a great second season. We'll see you on the other side. Cue the music. Better play.